0: If you would, open up with me in your Bibles to Jeremiah chapter 2. If you've got a Pew Bible, that's going to be on page 638. Uh, If you don't have a Pew Bible, go right to the middle of your Bible. You'll find Psalms or Jeremiah and turn to the right. Um, Jeremiah is the next book right after Isaiah. This is the second sermon in a four-part series called Rivers of Living Water. Last time I was with you, we opened up to Exodus chapter 17, which is the fountainhead of when God provides for His people, through water from a rock, even as they were rebellious against him. And we're going to trace the work of the Holy Spirit, God's gift to us, all the way through Scripture, all the way to the end, as Bill mentioned in Revelation chapter 22. But today we're in Jeremiah. The people have come a long way, in a bad way, from where they were in Exodus 17. If you remember, in Exodus 17, they were slaves in Egypt, and in the wilderness, they proved to be slaves to their own thirst. Their 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 need for water, their desire for water led them to a rebellious rage. And God led them all the way to his promised land. Um, but even as they're in the promised land and they have a king, they're, they're continually slaves to their own thirsts. They continue to obey what they want internally rather than following their one true covenant Lord, they over and over and over again turn to false gods of the nations around them for financial security, prosperity, And comfort. And we'll talk about the reasons why today. But Jeremiah, he's known as the Weeping Prophet. He lived about 700 to 600 years before Jesus was born. He was very young when God called him to be a prophet, probably 13 to 16 years old. And he's known as the weeping prophet because he continually called out to God's people, turn back to me, turn away from these false gods, come back to the one true God. And he wept because he never got to see that happen. King Josiah was a good king and there was a little bit of progress there right at the beginning of Jeremiah's ministry, but it, it did not happen. In 722, the northern kingdom fell, we're annihilated. And what we're going to see now is that Assyria, Babylon, and Egypt are just fighting over Israel. And God gave them what they wanted. What do I mean that God gave them what they wanted? The people said, we want a king like all the other nations. We want to be like the nations around them. And God, unfortunately, gave them what they wanted by allowing these other nations to conquer them. And they became just like them because they were assimilated and destroyed. And in 586, the temple was destroyed. It seemed like Israel was going to be wiped out from the face of the earth because they refused to turn back to their one true God. But even in this bleak setting in Jeremiah, who's a prophet of God, telling Israel this bad news, that consequences are coming, we see a beautiful picture of God's goodness and grace. Even in the bleak, we see something beautiful. And so I think in your bulletin, it says 11 through 13 in chapter two. I'm actually going to start reading in verse seven. So before I read, would you join me in prayer? Heavenly Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight and your sight alone today. I pray for the people who have gathered here today, Lord, that you would refresh them by your living water, that you would meet their thirst. Lord, be glorified even as we consider your word. And it's in your precious name that I pray. Amen. Jeremiah chapter 2, starting in verse 7. And I brought you into a plentiful land to enjoy its fruits and its good things. But when you came in, you defiled my land and made my heritage an abomination. The priest did not say, Where is the Lord? Those who handle the law did not know me. The shepherds transgressed against me. The prophets prophesied by Baal and went after things that do not profit. Therefore, I still contend with you, declares the Lord, and with your children's children, I will contend for cross to the coasts of Cyprus and see, and send to Kadar and examine with care. See if there has been such a thing. Has a nation changed its gods, even though they are no gods? But my people have changed their glory for that which does not profit. Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked, be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. And here's where we're going to focus most of our attention, verse thirteen. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me. The fountain of living waters, and have hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water." This is God's Word. In the 1980s, Sprite was not doing so well in the global soft drink um, economy. They, they weren't catching up. People didn't want to drink a lemon-lime soda. Until 1992, when an executive by the name of Sergio Simon came in and came up with a catchphrase that you guys are going to recognize. He said, image is nothing, thirst is everything, obey your thirst. And it worked. In four years, Sprite tripled their market share and their sales. Why did it work? Well, when you, when you read about what went behind that, why they made the decision, what they were trying to do, they were very intentionally trying to ca- tap into a core concern and a core belief. And it's not just a core belief of the 80s and 90s or today, it's a core belief of Jeremiah chapter 2. And the core belief is this, that what is most important is for you to trust your instincts, for you to do what you want, what comes naturally, to not just meet your needs, that we all have legitimate needs, but to obey your thirst, obey your desires. This kind of core belief believes that there is no authority that we should listen to other than ourselves, that we are the highest form of of decision making for our own lives. Obey your thirst. And this thirst for happiness leads to us being mastered by our desires. Mastered by our desires. Like I said, Israel were slaves in Egypt and as soon as they left, they were slaves to their own desires, slaves to their thirsts and what they wanted. And just like the thirst of Israel again for false gods didn't deliver, we know that Sprite didn't deliver if you ever tried to drink Sprite in an athletic event. It's not going to do what it's supposed to do. As I sat on the bench, which I did a lot, wearing my Adidas tearaway pants. Y'all remember those? They had buttons all down the sides. I didn't play much, but when I did, you better believe. And then you hop out there. Man, Sprite was not what I turned to to meet my thirst in that time. Jeremiah 2 shows us the natural consequences of obeying our thirst outside of God's covenant design. The natural consequences of obeying our thirst, not just heeding, not just being aware of them, but obeying them at all costs outside of God's covenant design. And the image that Jeremiah gives us is that Israel is caught red-handed holding a shovel. If God is a fountain, a never-ceasing fountain of beautiful, good water in the land of His covenant promise, it's like Israel has run out of town. They're trying to find... The Canaanites God's land and they've pulled out the shovel and they're digging for whatever they can find to meet their own need. They're holding the shovel of idolatry and they are digging as hard as they can. They exchange something soul satisfying for something that is stagnant and empty. And their idols end up being dried up attempts to draw on their own resources. Friends, I don't have to belabor the point because you and I all know that we have been caught red handed holding the shovel of idolatry. You and I have all picked it up and put it into ground wherever we think that it'll lead to something good. And so today, there's one thing that I I plead with you. I plead with you today to put the shovel down. Put the shovel down and come to the fountain. And this text gives us three reasons, great reasons, for us to put the shovel down. First, the foolishness of forsaking God. The foolishness of forsaking God. Next, the danger or futility of digging. The danger of digging, cisterns for ourselves, and finally, the freedom that comes from the fountain. The freedom that comes from the fountain. So first, the foolishness of forsaking God. We see in verse 8, the prophets prophesied by Baal, and we see down in verse 11, a nation has changed their gods. They've exchanged something. They have turned away from God and exchanged him for Baal. And in verse 13, we see a summary of what their sin is. And it's a two-part sin. It's really two sins. First, they've forsaken God. It's almost a passive sin. They've forgotten Him and turned away from Him. But then they've actively pursued someone or something else. The two sins is forsaking and then turning to something or someone else. And if you continue reading in Jeremiah, you'll see in chapter 4 that they're given a chance to repent. They're given a chance to turn back to the one true God. But then in chapter 5, we quickly see that they are unwilling and ultimately unable to do that. They're unable and unwilling to turn away from their idols and turn back to the one true God. And so a reckoning is coming. The consequences that God had promised years ago were coming. This would have been no, should have been no surprise to Israel that they were not going to be able to stay in the promised land. All the way back in Deuteronomy, God is recounting, He's retelling the story of His law and His love. Isn't it amazing how so often he reminds us of what he's done in the past? And so in Deuteronomy, they're standing on the cusp of the promised land. They're about to walk in and they're recounting the law, retelling the story. And listen to what God tells them in Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse seven, starting in verse 17. But if your heart turns away and you will not hear, but are drawn away to worship other gods and so, excuse me, serve them, I declare to you today that you will surely perish. You will not live long in the land that you are going over the Jordan to enter and possess. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life that you and your offspring may live. So in Deuteronomy 30, and then again in chapter 2 of Jeremiah, it's a courtroom setting. The charges are being laid, testimony is being given, and a sentence will be handed down. And heaven and earth are called as the witnesses. So in Deuteronomy 17, he says, I will call heaven and earth to witness. And look with me at verse 12. He's, he's talking directly to the heavens. Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked. He's calling them to testify because they've been watching Israel all this time and seen that they refuse to come back to God. They have forsaken him. And they couldn't have been surprised. God told them explicitly what would happen. If they continued in disobedience for this long, unwilling and unable to repent, they would die. Um, As many of you know, uh, my father passed away in May. And one of the things I appreciate most about him, and that I come back to over and over and over again, is that he always told us the truth. In an age-appropriate way, he'd just lay it all out there. Whatever was happening, he'd explain it to its full degree. And I'll never forget the night that we're in our house and we hear some shouting and screaming outside. And we're just like, whoa, what's going on? We hear it's coming from our neighbor's house. So my brother and I stay inside, but as, as soon as we hear it all quiet down, of course, we bolt outside to see what happened. And we don't see anyone, but then we see papers that are strewn all across our yard. So we go and we pick them all up. We don't know what they are. We bring them inside to our dad and he quickly looks at them, bundles them back up, puts them back in order and runs next door and puts them on the doorstep of our neighbor's house and comes back inside. And we're like, dad, what just happened? And he said, our neighbors just got served. It was a subpoena. They were being called to court to testify, likely against themselves, under penalty of not, if they didn't show up, there would be a severe penalty. Is that correct? Is that how it works? I'm looking at my lawyer. There are a few of you guys I could double check with. So they've been served. And and so I said, why were they screaming? And why why was it in our front yard? And he said, they, they refused to accept it. They'd been served and they refused to accept the papers. But here's the thing, whether they accept it or not, the judgment, the consequences is still coming down, right? They could scream, they could shout, they could throw it down. But the thing is, justice was coming. And it's good for us that justice comes. How can we live in a world of chaos if no justice is done? So a consequence was coming down, a reckoning, whether they accepted it or not. Friends, we live in a world where it's almost unloving to look at someone and say, what you're doing is against God or what, or what you want to do is actually harmful for you. We live in a culture where that is a horrible thing to say, but it would actually be unloving for me today to not look at you and say that the wages of sin is death. That Israel's salvation was always only by faith alone through grace alone, right? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. But their continued disobedience, the fact that they knew the truth and that they refused to follow God was evidence that that salvation inside was never a reality. They, they, they would die. They would not stay in the promised land because their, disobe- their continued unrepentance was evidence that they had never received that grace in the first place. It would be unloving for me to say, get up here today and not tell you that the wages of sin, staying away from God, isolated from God, will lead to physical and, more importantly, ultimate death. But it would also be even more unloving of me not to finish that sentence. That the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. When we look at verse 13, yes, it's a courtroom setting, but what are the people being called to? They are not be, The image is not them being called to a hostile, cold judge. They are being call, called to a God who calls himself a fountain of living water. They are being called to a refreshing, loving God. Not a hostile courtroom, but a refreshing fountain. And in our call to worship today in, in Psalm 36, Anthony read, We praise Him because with Him is the fountain of life. His resources are moving, cleansing, life-giving. Jeremiah is the first person in in the Word up until this point to use the term living water in a metaphorical way. Everyone before, when living water was mentioned in Scripture, just refers to moving water as opposed to stagnant water. Would you want to drink from a hole in the ground of stagnant water or would you want to drink from a clean, moving spring? Moving water was important for for cleansing and for cleanliness in the Old Testament law. Living water is life-giving. Stagnant water is not. God's resources to us are moving, cleansing, and life-giving. And so how foolish is it for us to turn away from that? So that's the foolishness of forsaking God. Next, we're going to talk about the danger of digging. Look with me at verse 13 again. It's a two-part sin. The people have forsaken me, the fountain of living water, but then they've dug broken cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Through the story of Scripture, we see that idolatry always leads to immorality. And so as Israel was worshiping these other gods, it's not that it didn't have an effect in their life as a nation. Israel was severely guilty of some specific sins. They were unjust towards the poor. And they also, through their worship of Baal, were very sexually immoral. Cult prostitution was a way of worshiping Baal. We'll talk a little bit more in just a second about who Baal was. But their idolatry led to very specific changes in their behaviors as, a, as individuals and as a nation. And in verse 13, the idols are compared to cisterns. Now, that's not a word we use a whole lot. A cistern is not a well. It's not something that we dig as a well and find a natural spring underwater. It was actually a really um, fascinating mechanical engineering piece where folks would dig down all the way into the bedrock, sometimes 30, 40 feet down, and they'd make a pear-shaped hole in the ground. Then they'd hop down there and they'd line it with plaster to make it waterproof so that it would actually hold water. On the very top would be a manhole cover, and then down to the side there'd be a, 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 I guess a little channel that anytime it would rain would funnel water into that channel then it would be able to be stored in the cistern. So, I mean, if there was a drought, it was really good to be able to open up that manhole cover, lower down, a bucket and then you were able to have some water. So essentially what they're doing is drawing on their own resources. But as you can imagine, the plaster would break. It would shatter and all the water would seep out and it would eventually just become a giant muddy hole in the ground and it was useless. Now what's interesting about this word system is, cistern is it's the same thing that Joseph was thrown into in Genesis chapter 27 but this uh, translation of the Bible translates it pit, but it's the same structure. And Jeremiah actually had intense knowledge of this because in Jeremiah 38, Jeremiah was actually thrown into one of these as well. He's seen it from the inside and he knows what a broken, muddy, disgusting cistern looks like because when he was thrown into it, he sunk up to his waist and had to be rescued out of it, redeemed. Our idols, specifically Baal are like a broken cistern that holds no water. But there's a deeper significance here. It's a cool picture that, yeah, our idols are not life-giving, and Jesus is, but it goes much deeper than that. Because, you guys, Baal was the storm god. The cistern was designed to catch rainwater. In the ancient Near East culture, Baal was in charge of the rain, or so people believed. And he was constantly at war with this other god who was the god of drought. And so the cultures around Israel and Canaan would worship Baal to try and get food and fertility. They thought if we worship Baal, he'll send rain. If we worship Baal, he'll make our lives and our families fertile as well. That's where the cult prostitution came in. Child sacrifice. It was horrible. He was a horrible God to serve, but it was all for financial security and comfort. We're gonna be okay if it rains. We're just, if it would just rain, we're gonna be okay in life. And so they kept looking to Baal to meet their needs. But no, he is a broken cistern. By turning to God, they were looking for a God who could be appeased, a God who could be controlled, a God who could really be manipulated. In Baal, they didn't want a covenant lord. They wanted a genie in a bottle. And in that, instead of looking up, they started digging down. Instead of looking up to the one true God, they start digging down. And they draw on reservoirs of self instead of God's provision and presence. Our works produce cisterns that we can draw on. But God is a fountain where that water is coming from another source, a better source. Now, we're here in the 21st century. We don't worship Baal. But in Romans 1:25 Paul says this, we have exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worship and serve the creature rather than the creator. What does this mean? From the beginning of time on, we take the created thing that God gives us, God's good gifts, and we turn it into a god. We take God's good gifts and we turn them into broken cisterns that we lay a shovel to and try and produce for ourselves instead of trusting God to provide for us. And so when we look at Romans one twenty-five, we can read backwards from that point to understand Jeremiah 2, and we can keep reading backwards even further all the way to Genesis chapter 2. And Genesis chapter 2 is before the fall. There was no sin in the world, and God gave us three good gifts. Made in his image, he created us to reflect his image. And what are the three gifts? They're sometimes called the creation ordinances. But all they are are good gifts. So first, God worked six days. Made in his image, we work, right? That's a good gift. Before sin ever entered the world, Adam and Eve had a job to do. And it reflected who they were made in God's image. Next, on the seventh day, God rested. And then he commanded that they rest as well. Made in God's image, we rest. Another gift. And then God says, it is not good for man to be alone, right? God lives in perfect unity and intimacy, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in the the Trinity. And made in His image, we were designed to live in relationship, right? So these are the three creation ordinances, relationship, work, and rest. We are made to enjoy these things because we were made in God's image. These things are good. But when we look at idolatry, we realize that over and over and over again, covetousness and all numbers of sins in our hearts have us take these good gifts and lay the shovel to them. And we turn them into broken cisterns. We misuse and abuse them. And we dig into them for our needs and wants. And all we're left with is dry plaster and empty souls. How do these, three, these big three gifts of God relate to one another? Jimmy, if you put the slide up. This is how the big three gifts of God relate to one another. We take them and we, we shift them into broken cisterns. Isolated from God, not turning to God as a river of living water, here's what we tend to do. And as we look at this, the question we have to ask is, under pressure, when, the thing, when things in life are tough, where do I turn? Where do I tend to turn to get my satisfaction if I'm not turning towards God? I want you to imagine a person standing in the middle And and he's isolated from God. He's isolated from other people. He looks towards rest and realizes that he he has none. He looks towards work and realizes that it's unsatisfying and that there is constant pressure. But there's this third gift that looks like it might offer something that I need. There's this third gift that looks like that might be the most workable ground. I might be able to dig into that and find some water. And it bears the weight of longing. And it bears the weight of that good desire for the good gifts of God, but misused completely, away from God. And so this person turns towards relationship, but a false form of relationship, a false form of intimacy. Brothers and sisters, when we turn towards this broken cistern, it looks like fantasy. It looks like pornography. It looks like sex outside of God's design in any way, shape, and form that God created us for faithfulness, one man and one woman in covenant marriage. And when we turn to relationship to meet that need, it looks like all kinds of different ways that we're fulfilling our own needs or what we want instead of enjoying God's gift the way that he has given it to us. And this tendency and this idol, this broken cistern, does not have to be just sexual because we are designed for intimacy and relationship, right? So what does it look like in another way, how often do we place a burden on our friends, on our community, on our church, and on our friends to meet a need deep down inside of ourselves that they can never meet? So we look to other people around us to make us okay. And by doing that, by putting the shovel into them, we're we'll not only crush them, but we'll crush ourselves in the process because they were never meant bear that kind of weight. We are made for intimacy, one another, in the body of Christ. There is no doubt. But when we put an undue burden on other people, we're gonna crush them and we're gonna crush ourselves. So that's the first broken cistern. Next, I want you to imagine someone. They're standing in the middle. They're isolated from God, isolated from other people. They look towards rest. They realize they have none. They look towards relationships. They're lonely and strained. But work, that look, I can do that. This person turns towards their work, and they become a workaholic. The paycheck, pat on the back, an attaboy, it seems satisfying and life-giving to define yourself around what you can do, but what do we do? We so often sacrifice our families, or even our own bodies, on the altar of success. It becomes a broken cistern when it's meant to be so good. Finally, I want you to imagine someone standing in the middle. They look towards work, there's no fulfillment there. They look towards relationship, there's no fulfillment there. They just want to escape. We're just longing for rest. Isolated for God, isolated from other people, turn to the broken cistern of rest and put that shovel in and dig as hard as we can because we're longing for hope, we're longing for satisfaction. And this false rest can look all kinds of ways. It can look like substances, food, alcohol, drugs, but there are also some more socially acceptable ways that we can escape and that we run away from the pain inside and the pain in, inside and outside. This can look towards torn, turning towards your phone. This can, look towards, this can look like fantasy football. This can look like video games. This can look like Netflix. This can look like eBay and Amazon. This can look like social media. This can look, even look like exercise or any number of other hobbies and outlets. How often do we just want to escape and we look to those things to meet the need that God designed for us? If you guys are like Kristen and I, you are um, absolutely hooked by the magicians over at NBC by a little program they show on Tuesday nights called This Is Us. If you're unfamiliar with This Is Us, it's the story of the Pearson family and there are three siblings, they're all the same age. And this story outlines their grief. They lost their beloved father named Jack and how they deal with their grief. Then they tackle issues of adoption, infertility, chronic pain. And so I watch this show and I'm so surprised I don't ugly cry every time I watch it (laughs) because it, it, it hits way too close to home on all kinds of levels. But I want you to think about the three siblings, the big three. Kristen and I were watching it the other day and I'd been writing this sermon and preparing and praying and getting ready for today. And I thought, wait a second, where does Kate turn? It's Kate, Randall and Kevin. Kate turns and finds her rest in food. She escapes into food. Randall becomes a perfectionistic workaholic. And Kevin turns to the applause of men as a movie star and a revolving door of relationships. The big three turn to the big three. Outside of God's covenant design, we take good things and we dig the shovel in Another time at Growth Group, we were talking about these three gifts of God and how we can repent and believe and look to Jesus, and we're talking about the relation of them all, and a buddy of mine later texted me, and he said, hey, have you ever heard the song um, Me and God by the Avett Brothers? And I said, no, I never have. I listen to the Avett Brothers music. I'm a big fan. So I looked up the song, and it's actually printed in your bulletin. And here's what they sing. I found God in a soft woman's hair, a long day's work, and a good sit in chair. We see the big three once again. Soft woman's hair, relationship, long day's work, work, and a good sitting chair, rest. But the tragic thing about this line is not the idolatry that they've turned aside to these broken cisterns. The tragic thing is the next line. What do they say? My God and I don't need a middleman. That's what's tragic. Because when we see what we've done with God's good gift, Jimmy, you can turn that off. Thank you. What we see when we break ourselves with these broken cisterns is that what we need most is a middleman. The relationship between us and God has been completely ruptured and there has to be a repair. And Jesus is the only one who can repair what's broken, who can take the shovel out of our hands and bring us back to the fountain of living water to drink. Jesus is our middleman, middle and without him we die of thirst. Friends, Jesus drank the cup of wrath, the consequences for sin that Israel was about to experience, death. He drank the cup of wrath on our behalf so that he could give us the Holy Spirit, that we could drink the cup of the Holy Spirit. That Jesus drank the poison of sin so that we could drink the antidote, the cross and the Holy Spirit at work in us. Jesus is our middleman. He meets that need. He is the fountain of living water. And this is where we find freedom. This is where we find freedom. So we've seen the foolishness of forsaking God, the danger of digging, finally, the freedom of the fountain. Earlier, Anthony read from John chapter 4, where Jesus meets a woman. And she's a woman who's done her fair of digging, hasn't she? A woman who's done her fair share of digging. And where did he meet her? At a well, a natural source of water springing up. And he says, don't look here. If you believe in me, a well of living water will spring up from within your soul. Speaking about the Holy Spirit. Jesus met her at a well with compassion, loved her, and showed her a better way. You see, true freedom is not found in keeping these three things in healthy balance. Please do not hear me say that the goal of the Christian life is to have a nice, healthy rest life, work life, and relationship life. That's not what we're talking about here. If you're looking to them for as idols, that's when it starts to get dangerous and where we hurt ourselves. But true non-Christians do just fine. They do just fine doing these things well. What we need is our Savior. We need true freedom by the work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts. Because peace in this life does not equal peace with God. Peace in this life does not equal peace with God. I want you to set your heart on more than just the gifts, friends. Set your heart back on your first love, the giver. Set your hearts on the giver. And so today what I ask of you, what I plead with you is to put the shovel down. And when I say that, please do not hear what I'm not saying. This is not a do-better, try-harder message. This is not a do-better, try-harder message of just put it down, stop it. No. The aim of the gospel is never simply to make us better behaved, but an end of the gospel is nevertheless our holiness. The aim of the gospel is never simply to make us better behaved, but the end of the gospel and end of the gospel is nevertheless our holiness. So when I say put the shovel down, it is not just do better, try harder, but wet your appetite for, a li- for living water and create in you a sense of urgency to turn away from your idols and turn back to God. And what that's going to take is digging deep because we have to figure out why we picked up the shovel in the first place. And that's a tough question. Whatever shovel we pick up, why did we pick it up? In the first place friends born into this world and looking to jesus you have a threefold identity all of us in this room are sinners broken by the things that we do actively that separates us from god and isolates us from god but you are also sufferers you have been sinned against and i can't imagine the ways perhaps even just living in this broken world has broken you down and sent you running to one of these shovels, one of these broken cisterns. But if you are in Christ, fixing your eyes on your Savior, and renewed and refreshed by the work of the Holy Spirit, you are also a saint. That God looks at you and sees a saint. If you belong to Jesus, if you are hidden in Christ, if you have drunk deeply from the fountain of living water, you are a sinner, you are a sufferer, but friends, you are a saint. If you belong to Jesus today, Because where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. This is 2 Corinthians 3. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. That is my hope for you. That looking full in the face of your Savior, you would be able to look full in the face of your sin and call it what it is and turn away from it and come to Jesus. Come to Jesus. The point here is not to abandon the gifts. We were made for these. We were made in God's image for these things. The point is not to abandon them. We even read in Proverbs 5, Drink water from your own cistern, flowing water from your own well. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. One application of like God saying, I have made these things for you. Enjoy them to, with, and towards God who made them. Does that make sense? Enjoy them the way God intended them to be enjoyed, because he made them. And friends, come to the Father who gives water from a rock. Come to a Savior who welcomes sinners with compassion. And come to a a Holy Spirit who cleanses us of all unrighteousness. Come to the fountain. So friends, if you find yourself holding the shovel of idolatry, as we all are I'd love to meet with you and talk about it. I'd love for you to get plugged in here at Redeemer in a way to get connected with other people who can talk with you about it. And together, we can look at God's Word where we find the fountain of living water. This is where we look full in the face of Jesus, that we can find the power of the Holy Spirit moving in and through us, and that in the beautiful context of Christian community, knowing one another, looking into God's word and praying for the work of the Holy Spirit, we can begin that process of repentance and faith, putting down the shovel and coming to living water. I love you, and I'd love to pray for you right now. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your good gifts, but we thank you most of all for Jesus. Lord, we confess our many sins, but we also confess a beautiful Savior. Lord, I pray for each person here, that this worship, Lord, gives them a glimpse of that fountain of living water, that they would come to him often, daily, moment by moment. Forgive us, Lord, where we have taken your gifts and turned them into our own resources. We love you, Lord, and it's in your precious name I pray. Amen.